You know, we've been praying for Michelle. Michelle's in quite a struggle with cancer right now. In fact, I don't, Michelle, Doug's here. I don't see Michelle this morning. Downstairs, okay, all right. Well, we're, as a church family, praying with them, and several of Michelle's friends are putting together a fundraiser that is going to be held on July 28th. It's going to be held right here at Calvary Church, uh, and it's going to help assist uh, a treatment option that the door has opened for this in Mexico, and it's just a way that her friends have to help assist and make that possible. So next Sunday, right after church, there is going to be a meeting for anyone who would like to volunteer at that event in July. There's going to be a lot of things that have to happen, uh, food, and there's going to be games, there's going to be uh, set up and tear down and all those kinds of things. So next Sunday, right after the service, any muscle, any people that would like to volunteer to be a part of that, uh, there will be a meeting right after the service next week to explain and uh, go from there. There will be more information coming on the fundraiser as uh, that day draws nearer as well. And by all means, and above all, we want to continue to keep Michelle in our prayer and the entire family. Um, I want to mention just one correction from the video announcements. Because of the volunteer meeting next week, we're going to take our next uh, lunch for all of those who are newcomers and wanting to check out the church. We're going to move that to July 7th, so sort of make a note of that. Well, we're happy to have Chris and Vicki Jovanovic with us today. Uh, they have been serving in the Philistine, Philistines, in the Philippines, I've got the Bible on my mind here, uh, in the Philippines for the past year, uh, and they're going to come this morning and just take a few moments to share with us, give us a glimpse of how God has been using them there. So let's, let's welcome them as they come. And I can also add that they have become parents during this year as well. So I think, and you can tell, little Oliver's right here with them too. So, uh, Chris? Thank you, Pastor. Yep. Well, good morning, and thank you for welcoming us. Uh, as Pastor mentioned, my name is Christopher Jovanovic. This is my wife, Victoria, and our son, Oliver. He's about a year old. Uh, we are missionaries in the Philippines, and we teach at a school called Faith Academy. It's an international and interdenominational school for the children of missionaries. My wife will tell you more about it. Since we have a short window, I speak faster. So, <laughs> Well, I have a personal connection with Faith Academy. I'm an MK from the Philippines myself. I went to Faith Academy from third grade through 12th grade. So it had a major impact on my life, enough so that I'm willing to go back to the school that I grew up in and teach. And I think the biggest thing was the teachers, because no one is paid. It's all free, and actually we have to pay to work there because we have to pay rent, we have to pay utilities, all of that stuff. But the school doesn't give us anything. So the teacher-student relationship is just absolutely amazing, because teachers are only there because they want to be there, not because the paycheck is good. So we are involved in the high school department. I teach music and PE, and Chris teaches history. And next year, he's going to be teaching high school girls PE as well, which is a great laugh. But because no one is paid, we all step up to the plate that they ask us to step up to. And so he's going to be doing PE next year, which is exciting. <laughs> we also coach sports. Um, I did soccer. He did soccer. I also did rugby. Um, and then we have a spring musical in the spring, so I was involved in that. Last year we did Beauty and the Beast. You want to talk? <laughs> 
Um, I had a D group of freshman girls that was so fun. We're going to continue next year. It was just such a great time to spend time in the Word with them. I mean, they know a lot more than I do in some areas. I know a lot more than they do in some areas. They've all grown up in so many different countries and cultures. So it's been so nice for us to be able to talk to them and get to know all the students. It's so fun. We also have another ministry at Faith called A for J or All for Jesus, which is Lahat Kai Cristo in Tagalog. And we bring street kids all around uh, the school up on campus every Sunday morning from 7 to 9. And we have a Sunday school. We feed them a meal. We play games. They get to play around with all the Faith Academy students, which they love. And it's all uh, just volunteer basis by the students. And we get to share Jesus with all the kids. And we've had quite a few parents come to Christ through their kids, which is amazing. We impact people in three different ways at Faith Academy, the first of which is we reach out to the students. We have an opportunity on a day-to-day basis to reach out to students. There's a common misconception perhaps that, you know, it's, it's Christian students going to a Christian school, they're all missionary kids, so they live perfect Christian lives. That's not the case. Um, many of them are struggling with a lot of things people struggle with, and we help them with that every single day. And um, AG says that 70% of their missionaries today are former MKs. So, I mean, I'm a testament to that. We are also reaching future generations by making sure that the missionary kids of today are well taken care of and that their spiritual and educational needs are met. Um, Also, we have meetings each month where parents come in and tell us how they're able to fulfill their ministry because of the work that we do with their kids. They would probably have to homeschool or maybe even go back to their home country to make sure that they had good education. But instead, we're taking care of their kids and making sure that they're well-nourished both all the ways that they need. Thank you for your time today. We do have a table in the back, and after service, we'd love you to come talk to us, um, ask us any questions you'd like to ask us. We have prayer cards. We have more information about Faith Academy. We also have bracelets for sale. These bracelets are for a ministry that works out of Faith Academy called Threads of Hope, and uh, it gives a trade to former um, trafficked girls. So thank you very much. It's always great to uh, hear what God's doing in various places throughout the world. And um, that's why we have a steady stream of uh, missionaries that come through this church. Uh, seems like almost every six weeks or so. Because we want, and we are, part of what everything that we hear, including what uh, Chris and Vicki have said today, this church has a part in every life that they touch. Uh, because... We're part of what sends them there, and we really appreciate your faithfulness and your giving and your vision that extends beyond, beyond self-interest, beyond the walls of our own church into our world. So God bless you guys. You know, I've noticed a trend over several years. Mother's Day, everybody comes with their mother to church. Father's Day <laughs> is sort of the opposite. Have you noticed that? But I know that a lot of fathers are with their fathers <clears throat> at their churches, and, uh, but we're, we're just grateful for every one of you fathers that are here this morning. God bless you for that, uh, and everyone else too. <clears throat> we're in a series right now called Final Word, and what we're, we're asking this question, is there a final truth 
for humanity, something that we can really hang our hat on, a truth with a capital T. Now, this, of course, is what the foundation of our Christian faith claims. The writers of this book claimed all the way through, cover to cover, to be inspired by God. That means that God himself was guiding them and directing them in the content that we have in what we call the Bible. And of course, when Jesus came, Jesus said, this whole book is about me. So Jesus put his stamp of approval upon this book as the word of God. Last week, when we kicked this series off, we took a look at three choices. When it comes to the issue of there being a final truth, which is really the question of, is there a God or isn't there? What is faith real? Does it connect to anything? Whenever it comes to those questions, we only have three choices. There's only three options. One is, there is no God. And of course, if there is no God, then we're certainly not going to have any kind of communication from him. The universe is silent. Secondly, well, perhaps there's an impersonal God out there. That would mean God is more like a force or an energy Well, if that's the kind of God that's behind everything, then we're certainly not going to expect to have a book like this that claims to be a communication from that God. He's impersonal. And then the third choice is that there is a personal God, in fact, an infinitely very personal God behind the entire universe. And if there is a personal God there, that means he has the the qualities of a person, which are intelligence, understanding, morality, a sense of right and wrong and justice, uh, relationality, a God of relationship. And if God is all that, a God of emotion, if that's the God who's behind the universe, then we would certainly expect an infinite, a, a, a God like that to be an infinitely passionate communicator, a God with an infinite vocabulary, a God who desires to communicate. And so last week we, we took a look at that kind of God, and we, and we ask the question, when we look at ourselves, what are we like? Well, we find that human beings are all about communication, aren't they? We talk. We, well, I'm not going to give you the whole sermon. You can listen to the CD or the, go online and listen to the, the podcast from that sermon last week. But we're just trying to lay the foundation for this series that we have a... That, if we, if we posit, I think the most logical of those choices is looking at the way we correspond to the longings we have in our life are for communication, not just with ourselves, but we all have this longing for meaning, for some sort of final truth. So there's a big indicator inside of us that there's a God who is a communicating God and That's the first step in understanding that we would expect a God like that to reveal himself, perhaps, in a book like this, a written record for one and all, that we can come to some understanding of what final truth is about life and about eternity. Now, if you're here this morning and you are coming with doubts or skepticism about these questions, I want to just welcome you. I want to thank you for coming. I want to thank you for being a a person with honest questions and a person who is on a search, on a journey. And uh, my prayer is that uh, this series and this sermon today could be of some help in maybe uh, answering some questions along the way. So grateful to have you here today. Now, uh, today we're going to talk about Jesus and the Bible. Um, And I want to start like this. This past week, uh, my very best childhood friend 
uh, all the way from first grade through 12th grade. Very best friend. Stopped by for one night to visit us. He stopped with his wife. His name is Lowell, and her name is Cheryl. And uh, we had a a whole evening, just one evening, to catch up on the past. And a good part of it was just telling stories from years gone by. We told story after story. and, And the thing that amazed me was that we could both remember after 50, 55 years so much detail of really inconsequential things that happened so many years ago. One of those was the day in fifth grade when uh, we decided to sneak off to the store that was down the street from the school. And um, <clears throat> we were allowed to do that if we brought a, you know, a permission slip from our parents. But without that, you, know, you couldn't do that. Well, five of us guys, Lowell and myself included, we conspired together and decided to make the trip. And Lowell, you know, he, he remembered exactly why we were doing it. It's because back right then was when this whole new uh, candy, uh, I guess you would call it a, a, a lollipop, came out called uh, Sugar Daddy. Okay? Now, it makes me feel old when I can look back and say, I remember when a certain candy bar had its origin. But, uh, but anyway, that's what drew us down there. We were going after Sugar Daddy. And uh, I think it should be, yes, there it is, right there. I think they're still around today. Be careful, they can pull your fillings out when you, when you get to be my age, too. So uh, I don't eat them much anymore. But uh, we had it all figured out. Uh, we were going to, at noon recess, we would slip out the side door of the school. We would go get our treasure. We would come back and then inconspicuously sort of mingle in on the playground with all the other kids, and nobody would ever know what's going on. Well, it was working fine, except when we went out that side door, one of the girls saw us. And uh, Lowell instantly remembered, and I remember, exactly who that girl was. Her name was Shirley Gum. And by the way, Shirley, if you happen to listen to this podcast, I want you to know that Lowell and I hold no ill will, and we totally forgive you. But Shirley went straight to the teacher as soon as she saw us head down the street. And so the teacher was waiting for us when we got back. Uh, And Lowell remembered exactly what the punishment was. We had one month where we had to stay in and do homework and other assignments instead of noon recess. Now, that was 54 years ago in fifth grade. Now, I want you to hang on to that for just a second. We have three questions we're going to look at today. One is... Can we trust that the Bible reliably records for us the life and the teachings and the actions of Jesus Christ? In other words, does this tell us about the Jesus of history, the real Jesus? Now, one criteria that historians always look for when they're trying to authenticate a work from the ancient world or not-so-ancient world They always look for how much time has elapsed between when that person lived and when people start to write about that person. Uh, So one really important question for us this morning is this. How long after Jesus lived did the New Testament start to be written? What if the memories of him had become inaccurate? What if the memories started to fade away? They got blurred so that what we have here is sort of a mixture of faded memories and some inaccurate statements, and we don't have the real picture about Christ. What if that's the case? 
Well, you know, I was thinking about that when Lowell came and visited the other night. Because Lowell and I have this detailed memory of story after story, of inconsequential events going back 50, 55 years ago. We could pull those out without any effort whatsoever. And we were there to confirm them with each other. We remembered it. Now, when you take that and set it alongside the New Testament, which began to be written within 20 years of Jesus' life, first by the Apostle Paul, and then over the next two or three decades by all the others who wrote and gave us the New Testament. And then, so when you think about that short time lapse, and secondly, when you think about the kinds of things that Jesus said and did, Jesus did not say and do inconsequential things. Jesus did unforgettable things. And so, for, and he did it among hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses who lived to credit or discredit anything that was written by him in that first century. And so I see the evidence of history here uh, answering that first question. There would have been no problem for recall to come back among all the eyewitnesses that were investigated at that time in bringing us what we have written in the New Testament. Now, this is what the Apostle John, who was one of the inner circle of eyewitnesses of Jesus, this is what he means when he writes at the end of his biography of Jesus, what we call the Gospel of John. This is what he says. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. And then John ends his gospel by saying this, This disciple, referring to himself, is the one who testifies to these events and has recorded them here. And we know that his account of these things is accurate. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. And as I said a moment ago, when they started writing, there would have been hundreds of people around to credit or discredit what was being written. Now, one of the other early writers, he understood the importance of eyewitnesses as well. And that's Luke, who wrote, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And Luke tells us, when he opens up his Gospel, we'll read it in just a second, that he went around to scores of eyewitnesses who had seen and heard Jesus. And Luke wrote his gospel somewhere between A.D. 60 and 65, somewhere in that neighborhood, about 25, maybe 28 years after the life of Jesus. This is what Luke, how he begins his gospel. This is what he says. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was a new Christian in Rome. And Luke was writing this because Theophilus had not been an eyewitness of Jesus. Luke is writing this to give him a certainty to his faith. So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Now, I want to refer to a guy by the name of Dr. Craig Evans. He's a professor at Acadia University. He has a list of scholarly credentials that are about a mile long. Among them, 
He was the director, former director of the Dead Sea Scrolls Institute. He has a degree in both philosophy and history. His specialty is the history of the New Testament. He's written 50 technical books, the titles of which I am not going to share with you because they would bore you. (laughs) They're so technical. They have to do with ancient languages and how the comma and punctuation marks you know, fit in ancient Greek. Okay, that's his specialty. He is a specialty, specialist. Now, he's lectured at Cambridge and Oxford at Yale. He has lectured at the Field Museum in Chicago. <clears throat> he's been interviewed on Dateline, NBC, and the History Channel. Now, this is what he says about the New Testament writings. We are not talking about Jesus being remembered by one or two or three people but about whole communities, never smaller than dozens and probably in the hundreds. There's every reason to conclude that the Gospels accurately report the essential elements of Jesus' teaching, life, death, and resurrection. Now, I also want to refer, as we move through this quickly, I want to refer to another kind of expert. And this man's name is Jim Wallace. Uh, Jim Wallace was for years a cold case homicide detective out in Los Angeles. And uh, I want to read, I just want to read for you what he's written about his own journey and his own discovery of faith. This is what he says. He says, I was an atheist for 35 years. I was passionate in my opposition to Christianity, and I enjoyed debating my Christian friends. I became a police officer and eventually advanced to detective. I spent 12 years working cold case homicides, Along the way, I developed a healthy respect for the role of evidence in discerning truth. And my profession gave me ample opportunity to press into practice what I learned about the nature and power of evidence. Throughout all of this, I remained an angry atheist, hostile to Christianity, and largely dismissive of Christians. But I have to admit that I never took the time to examine the evidence for the Christian worldview without the bias and presuppositions of naturalism or of my atheism. I never gave the case for Christianity a fair shake. When I finally examined the evidence fairly using the tools that I learned as a detective, I found it difficult to deny, especially if I hoped to retain my respect for the way evidence is utilized to determine truth. I found the evidence for Christianity to be as convincing as any cold case I had ever investigated. Now, he's talking about going back and examining the references to time, the date, the names, the minute details that eyewitnesses who are actually at an event always throw into their story that only an eyewitness could possibly know. That's what cold case detectives look for. When he sat down to read the New Testament that his wife gave him, he didn't go to church. His wife gave him a New Testament. He sat down and started leaving through it, leafing through it. As he read, he, it almost jumped off the page. Now, I, this, is, this is what I look for in eyewitness testimony. And so now Jim Wallace has wrote and, written a book called Cold Case Christianity. It's just been published. And, uh, and you might want to check that out if you have further questions on this. But he's also going to be right here at Calvary Church on September 21st and 22nd, a Saturday and a Sunday, to do a seminar here based upon that book. And it's an area-wide seminar for our church family and for 
people all around us and for us to bring our friends to. Because you know what? We may be followers of Jesus Christ, but we live in a world where there are all kinds of questions, all kinds of skepticism about whether Jesus was who he said he was, whether this Bible is really what it claims to be, whether there's even a God out there to, to even be concerned about. And this, I think, Jim Wallace, he travels all over the country addressing, he's at universities, he's going to be here with us as well. Mark those dates down. Now, the writers of the New Testament also knew that as the eyewitness generation began to age and would one day pass away from the scene, they knew that an accurate written record of Jesus' life and teaching needed to be put down on on papyrus back then for coming generations so that we would have that record. Now that brings up our second question today, and it's an important one. Even if those first century writings were accurate, how do we know that all of the copies and the translations of those originals over the last 2,000 years have been kept accurate and not corrupted or infused with all other kinds of legends and ideas? How do we know that? Well, first let me give an illustration. Um, Imagine that your grandma has a great recipe, recipe for peanut butter cookies. They're just to die for. And she's getting up in years, and uh, so she decides, I'm going to make copies of my recipe, and I'm going to give them to my three kids. And then the three kids start baking these cookies, and visitors start saying, wow, those are to die for. I need that recipe. And so the three kids start making copies of grandma's cookie recipe, and, and pretty soon there's a hundred copies of grandma's recipe out there that people have. Well, then one day, tragically, grandma's pet dog eats her recipe. The original recipe is gone. It's, no, it's, it's gone for good. And so now there's this concern among her kids Well, we want to make sure that we have that recipe exactly as it was written, down to the word, down to the ingredient. So what do the kids do? Well, they say, okay, we need to go out there and find as many copies of that recipe as we can possibly find. So they go out and round up maybe 80 or 100 copies of the recipe that have now began to circulate. And there's probably more than that because the friends of friends are probably circulating the recipe too to other people that like these cookies. Well, as they spread all of these copies out and they begin to look at them, find, they begin to scrutinize those copies, what they find is, well, one of the copies, the copier, you know, your eyes get tired when you're copying things sometimes, they left out a word. They left out, a, they left out an ingredient that was originally in grandma's recipe. Or you might look at another one and, oh man, there's a word misspelled here. Or, uh, or we might even look at another copy and say, well man, this person tampered with the recipe. Look, they added in their three cups of sugar instead of two. Okay? Uh, so, but, what, but, what, but here's the great thing is you have, for every mistake you might find, a minor mistake you might find in one recipe, you have 99 other recipes that you can set it down beside, and most likely those other 99 recipes are going to get it all right. So there's going to be a 99% agreement 
against that 1% error in the copy. Okay? Now, that's exactly how the New Testament spread from the very first century on. I, the eyewitness writings from the very beginning were copied over and over and over again. And as the faith spread to all different parts of the world, there were hundreds and thousands of copies of the original documents of the New Testament. So that if, there was, if one scribe was sitting there, and he'd been writing on papyrus for 15 hours, he'd been writing, the, the, you know, copying the New Testament. All of a sudden, his eyes get tired, and he leaves out an entire line of Mark. Say he leaves out an entire line of the Gospel of Mark, because he's tired. Well, you have thousands of others, thousands of other New Testament copies to set alongside, and they're going to show exactly what, you know, what that error was. So, um, now, let me, let me compare this to other ancient writings uh, against the New Testament. In the, the first century historian Tacitus, he wrote the major source for what we today know about the Roman history of Jesus' time, of the first century. His book is called The Annals of Imperial Rome. But you know what? There are only two copies of his book that have survived down to our day. And those two copies come from 1200 A.D. They come 1200 years after Tacitus wrote this. You see the huge gap between, the huge gap there, and only two copies to substantiate it. Now, incidentally, Tacitus does refer to the trial of Jesus by Pontius Pilate and to his crucifixion in his his historical record that outside the Scripture, just a more corroboration of the Scripture. But now when you come to the New Testament, guess how many manuscripts and copies we have today surviving from past centuries? We have over 20,000 copies today of the New Testament that date back some of its fragments going back as early as from the book of John to A.D. 117, between A.D. 117 and A.D. 138. And, and going up from there, copy after copy after copy of the original documents of the New Testament. And the other thing is that in, at the beginning of the first centuries, when the apostles began to die out, there, there raised up a whole generation of what we call church fathers, And they so readily quote from every part of the New Testament that even if we didn't have any of those 20,000 copies, you could go back to the the writings of those first century uh, church fathers and the whole New Testament is quoted in their writings. Uh, There is absolutely no question that when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, when you sit down and read your Bible, the New Testament today, there's absolutely... No question that you are reading the very same words that were circulated in the first century from the pens of the apostles, the things that Jesus said and did as eyewitnesses wrote it down. And this is what the apostle John, who was the last of the apostles to die, he died around uh, A.D. 90, A.D. 95. And this is, how, this is what he says as he opens one of the very closing books of the New Testament. This is what he says. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. 
We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. And you know, the other thing to realize about about all these eyewitnesses who wrote the New Testament, the apostles and the other writers, is that when they put that in writing, it was at great personal cost to themselves and to everybody who embraced their writings because all of them suffered for, what, for the beliefs that they wrote on paper. They all suffered, and they suffered intensely. And a good many of them died for what they wrote down. But they did it, they faced death, never budging, never budging at all from the truth that they had committed themselves to and believed with all their hearts. So now there's one other question that remains, and this, this really brings it home to you and me. What we have, as we've been saying, we have what Jesus said and did written down for all of us to read. All we've got to do is pick it up and start reading it. It's the real history of the real Jesus. Here's the question. Do you believe what he says about himself in these pages of the New Testament? Do you believe what he said about who he was? Now, I want to bring in another very famous man who was also a former atheist here. He was a professor at Oxford and Cambridge. I've referred to him many, many a time. Um, He taught there in the early and middle 1900s. One of the foremost scholars on literature the world has ever seen. Expert in ancient literature, especially Middle Ages. And one of the greatest experts on mythology the world has ever seen. And of course, I'm referring to C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was one man who could recognize the genre and style of mythology. But he was a man who was also convinced that when he sat down and read the New Testament documents, he was not reading the genre of mythology. He was reading the genre of genuine eyewitness history. And he became a prolific follower of Jesus Christ, one of the most influential and brilliant followers of Jesus Christ in the 20th century. But Lewis also said this. He had lots of conversations with some of the intellectual people, the greatest intellects of the world. And he said a lot of people, when they read about Jesus in the New Testament... They want to accept him as a great teacher, as a man who brought the world tremendous moral, ethical genius, perhaps the greatest, the Sermon on the Mount, the Good Samaritan, the love ethic that Jesus taught, unequaled, applauded today in the history of the world, applauded down to to this day. But those same people, when they read the other parts of what Jesus said and did, For instance, when they read about him doing miracles, and even more, when they read the things about what he, when he was talking about who he was, 
A lot of these people would say, wait a minute, we can't go that far with Jesus. We can't swallow that. And so uh, Thomas Jefferson's an example of this. Thomas Jefferson took the New Testament, and he also took a pair of scissors one day, and he went through the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that, that tell about Jesus, and he cut out all the miracles. He cut out every place where Jesus ta- talked about who he was. And the only thing he had left was what he wanted to have from Jesus, and he highly respected it. He wanted the teachings, the moral teachings that Jesus Christ gave. That became Tom, it's called, in fact, it's called Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Uh, just the moral teachings of Christ because he couldn't, he couldn't buy into the other stuff that Jesus said. But C.S. Lewis comes along and he says, he challenges that because he says, well, Jesus doesn't allow that to even be an option on the table because the centerpiece of Jesus' entire teaching was about who he was. It was about his identity. And Jesus said over and over again that he was the eternal Son of God, whom the eternal Father sent into the world to be the light in the darkness, to be our salvation, our redemption, to pull the world back together again. I want you to listen just to one conversation that Jesus had, and it was a pretty heated conversation. In John chapter 8, Jesus made this statement, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Now, a lot of the religious leaders were standing around when he made that statement, and they challenged him. And so verse number 13 says, the Pharisees replied, the religious leaders replied, you are making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus responds, These claims are valid, even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you don't know this about me. And then in verse 25, they they say, flat out, Who are you, they demanded. Jesus replies, The one I've always claimed to be. I have much more to say to you, but I won't right now. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me. That is the Father. And he is completely truthful. And then Jesus shares with them this truth. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys me, my teaching, will never die. What's Jesus claiming there? He's claiming to be the author of life. Verse 52, the people responded. Now we know that you're possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And this is what Jesus says. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it way back in 2000 BC. He saw it, and he was glad. The people said, You aren't even 50 years old yet. How can you say that you have seen Abraham? And here's the answer that Jesus gives. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Now when Jesus says, I am, and I was there even before Abraham was born, what's he saying? 
Well, when he says, I, my, when he's saying, I am, he's taking that holy, sacred name by which God revealed himself to Abraham and the prophets, by whom God revealed himself to Moses. Remember when Moses was at that burning bush? He approached it, and God says, take off your shoes, and, and then God identifies himself. Moses asks, what's your name? And God says, my name is this, I am. That's my name. What does God mean by that? He says, I am the eternally present. I have always been, I will always be, and I am always here in the present. He is the eternal, everlasting God. When Jesus stood in front of these religious leaders, and he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I was already there. I am. He's saying, I am God. But you know what they did? In verse 59 it says, At that point they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. They didn't buy in. And stoning was the, was the uh, punishment for blasphemy, which is what they considered Jesus to be doing. But that's one conversation among many all the way through the New Testament where Jesus is very clear about who he is. And so C.S. Lewis says that because his claim is so absolutely clear about who he is, the option of just taking him as a good teacher and cutting the rest away, that option just isn't on the table. Jesus doesn't leave it on the table for us. He only leaves us three choices about who Jesus is. And these are pretty famous statements of C.S. Lewis, but I think they're pretty valid. The first one is, we could draw this conclusion about Jesus. He was a liar. In fact, he would be the worst, most evil, and deliberate liar who ever walked the face of the earth. Because he intentionally deceived people into believing he was someone who he really wasn't. So we have that option. He was simply a downright evil guy, a deliberate liar, and a, 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 uh, you know, an inveterate liar. Number two, he was a lunatic. He was absolutely insane. He was egomaniac, thinking he was God. And he was uh, going around with illusions of grandeur, thinking he was someone far beyond who he was. So that's another option. He was just insane. The third option is that he is Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. And that he was totally in touch with who he was. There was no identity crisis going on with Jesus, no schizophrenia, but that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And the evidence we have about Jesus Christ inside and outside the Scripture does not match options one and two. Because Jesus is still respected through history down to this day and is quoted again and again as giving the world an unequaled moral and ethical genius, a moral and ethical wisdom. And you know what? That's not something that comes from the world's most evil liar. It's not something that's likely to come from the world's most insane, out-of-touch person. It's very likely to come from someone who knew exactly who they were. And so the evidence is 
both from the accurate eyewitness records that tell us where Jesus' words are actually recorded, and then what he said in those words. The evidence is that he is exactly who he says he is. So the question for you and I is, do we believe? Because if Jesus is who he is, who he says he is, then the only appropriate response is to fall flat on our face in worship and say, Lord God, Lord God. That's what Thomas, you know, Thomas was the skeptical one among his 12 disciples. He wouldn't believe the resurrection. But when he saw Christ, he falls down and says, my Lord and my God. That is the appropriate response. He is Savior. He is God. Now, if you're here searching for truth this morning, you know, what I would say is this. I think there's a, you can pile up a lot of evidence. You can make a huge mound of evidence pointing to Jesus Christ being who he said he was. And I would refer you to some of the websites that were on the screen today. In fact, I will put on, uh, I will blog this week and have it up on Tuesday, a list of other websites and resources, if you're really searching this, that you can get into it and you can take a look at this uh, because there's a million more things to be said than what we were able to say here this morning. But once you pile up all the evidence and you get it as high as you can and it, it's pointing to the fact that, man, yeah, Jesus... He's who he said he was. Well, you know what? No matter how high you pile that evidence, you still fall short of knowing him. Because the only thing that will close that gap between the evidence that points toward him and actually having a relationship with him, actually knowing him, is what Jesus called, that's why he calls us to faith. To put our trust and faith in him. And, uh, and when we do that, he makes a promise. He makes a promise that in a deep, profound way, he will reveal his presence to you in a very personal way at the deepest, very core of your being. And that will become the greatest, that will become the final evidence for you that Jesus Christ really is who he said he was because he's a person who's there wanting a relationship with us. To a woman he met getting a drink at a well. This is how Jesus explained that profound inward revelation of his presence to those who place faith in him. He says, if you will believe in me, it will become, it'll be like a well of life that begins to spring up inside of you. A well that wasn't there before. It'll be the very life of God himself that has now come into you. And it'll be there forever and ever. And I think it's a great invitation to take Jesus up on and see if he follows through. See if he's really there. I want to encourage that today if you've never done that before. Um, to take that leap of faith. That's what Soren Kierkegaard, a great Christian philosopher, said. A leap of faith after the evidence is all in. That's what connects us with Christ. So I have some homework for you this week. Here's the homework. Um, to read the Gospel of Luke... It's the third book of the New Testament. To read that this week, or take your iPod, and what I do is I walk, when I'm out walking, I plug my earphone into my iPod and I listen to the Scripture. Uh, get into that this week and see, see what you find there. See, what, see, what, see, what you, uh, see how it, it, it clicks with you. That's your homework for this week, to get a grip on the Scripture and start with the Gospel of Luke. Um, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a sure word to stand upon for our faith. It's not a blind leap into thin air, Lord. There's all kinds of evidence underneath it to support that step of faith we take to to come to know you. And so, Father, I pray for every person here today, wherever we stand in our journey of of moving, of, of seeking God, that I pray, Lord, that we will get a new grip on just how precious and wonderful and solid this book is that we hold in our hands and upon which we base our faith and our trust. And we give you praise for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Next week, we're going to talk about the power of the Scripture. 